Hello, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent. I am back from a couple of weeks off. I know uh, Sean has hijacked the podcast while <laughs> I've been gone, so I appreciate him doing that, him and Travis. Um, but today we're going to be diving into some church history topics. Uh, before we dive into that, I want to note our some of our mediums that we post on. Remember to follow our YouTube channel. Um, it's just The Particular Baptist. Subscribe, hit the bell to get new videos. Um, we're also on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and other platforms. Um, then we also have our blog, which we write to pretty frequently. It is theparticularbaptist.net. So be sure to follow those uh, mediums to get our latest content. And with that, I'll hand it over to Sean to introduce our topic. Yeah, and uh, before we begin, I do also want to uh, note that we do have a guest on today, uh, Andrew Warwick, who's been on the podcast before. So if you've if you've been listening for a while, you might you might recognize the voice. But um, yeah, as Dan said, today we're going to be talking about church history. Uh, we're going to be talking about early church history, and this topic uh, today has really been born out of a couple of Facebook conversations and people on the internet that I've seen, um, basically stating the claim that. In the early church, there were no credo Baptists, and Pado Baptism was the uh, the entire. Everybody was a Pado Baptist, basically. And uh, uh, I, I want to highlight that, regardless of what the history, what uh, what historical evidence survives to this day, we would still be credo Baptist based on the Bible. The Bible is the the first source of authority. It's where we go to determine. Uh, doctrine and truth. So regardless of the history, uh, you should get your theology from the Bible. However, we believe that looking through the early uh, centuries of the church, uh, we're going to focus mainly on the first two centuries here today, um, that uh, not only does it appear that uh, paedobaptism is not necessarily the primary or the, um, the, uh, the widely held uh, view, um, there's good evidence that credo-baptism is. Uh, we're not going to definitively say that all people in the first two centuries were credo-baptists, but uh, we just want to go through the evidence and demonstrate this is not clear as clear as people want to want to make it out to be. And they're they're not necessarily they they might not know, but some of them also might not be completely honest in what uh what uh what uh, the history is. Yep. So we're going to be diving into some, we're going to go through some early church fathers material and kind of dissect some of the quotes that might tend to imply maybe some sort of infant regeneration of a baptism and, and look at those. Before we get into that, I want to, um, I think it's important if we're going to make claims about church history, we have to establish sources to be able to back up our claims. So I'm going to go through, um, first I want to read a quote from Michael Horton's book, Pilgrim Theology, and he is a prominent Presbyterian. He's in the United Reformed Churches, um, teaches at Westminster Theological Seminary, but he talks about the historicity of infant baptism. So I'm going to start off with this quote. With respect to the historical argument, Baptists point out the paucity of evidence for infant baptism in the earliest post-apostolic communities. This has been a matter of debate among church historians for some time, but there is considerable evidence in favor of infant baptism in the early church. Regardless, the same response can be made here. Uh, the same response can be made here as is offered in relation to the lack of New Testament commands to baptize infants. We have no evidence for any commands to forbid infant baptism. And by the second century, the literature is replete with references to the practice. 
Just as the exclusion of believers' children would have provoked controversy among early Jewish Christians, surely such a radical change from apostolic to post-apostolic practice on such an important matter would have sparked considerable debate. On the contrary, Tertullian in the second century, due largely to his involvement in the Montanist movement, questioned the propriety of infant baptism, baptism 18, and his contemporary origin said that, quote, the church had from the apostles a tradition or order to give baptism even to infants, end quote, and that's from his commentary in Romans 5. Taking infant baptism for granted, the Council of Carthage, 253, debated whether it should be performed on the eighth day like circumcision. So we see our Presbyterian brothers, it seems like they try to make a historical argument for it, but then they go to, you know, the New Testament saying, well, we, you know, the New Testament doesn't really say, you know, that there's a practice forbidding or any commands to forbid infant baptism. So that's kind of parallel to the claim that we're saying where there's lack of historical evidence. And I think that's, that's really a false parallel, um, especially given, and we were talking about this before, the regular principle of worship. You know, the script, we believe as reform folks that the regular principle of worship governs how we worship God. And since baptism is a sacrament that should be part of worship, um, that would be regulated by scripture. So if scripture doesn't command us to do it, we shouldn't be doing it. And I think that would include infant baptism. And I think uh, that's really an argument from silence at that point, especially since uh, the scriptures give us explicit teaching about baptism in the positive, and it's always for believers. So yeah. I think we have to be very careful when we make arguments like that. Um, but in terms of uh, backing up our position, in the book Baptists in America, a history, they say, quote, the church father Tertullian in North Africa was the first writer to make a clear reference to infant baptism in the late second century. He seemed to imply that this was a new practice, and in general, he opposed infant baptism because very young children could not recognize their sin if they had any or need or their need of salvation. The practice of infant baptism appears to have begun as an emergency measure for small children at risk of dying. Christian parents did not want their children to die unbaptized because certain New Testament passages seem to suggest that this would keep them out of heaven. From the second to the fourth centuries, infant baptism, especially in cases of dire illness, became more common for the children of Christian parents. It was in the early fifth century that St. Augustine made the pivotal argument for the adoption of infant baptism. So basically, for the first 500 years of the church, you don't see any real systematizing of the theology of infant baptism until Augustine. And I think that's significant when you're trying to formulate an argument from church history in support of this practice. And even um, Philip Schaff, who was not a, not a Baptist, I think he was um, in the German Reformed churches, which I think was more Presbyterian, he said in his church history, quote, in reviewing the patristic doctrine of baptism, which was sanctioned by the Greek and Roman, and with some important modifications also by the Lutheran and Anglican churches, we should remember that during the first three centuries, and even in the age of Constantine, adult baptism was the rule, and that the actual conversion of the candidate was required as a condition before administering the sacrament, as is still the case on missionary ground. And now he does go on to discuss how he believes infant baptism was um, discussed in the early church, and I think maybe even widely used, but I thought this was an important quote to use, because even someone who it does not hold to the Cuda Baptist position has to admit that there's really that adult baptism based on profession of faith was the norm for the churches for the first 300 years. Um, and even our confession sort of, I don't think this was intentional, but addresses this to some extent 
in chapter 10, paragraph 3. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who worketh when and where and how he pleases. So also are all elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. Now, I think our confessional writers wanted to emphasize that uh, th this is the work of God. Even, even those who cannot be called with the outward work of the spirit or, or the word, I should say, um, can be called by the spirit. And God is not limited by their incapacity to believe on their own. Um, so because apparently there was there were those in the early church who thought infant baptism kind of brought this eternal security, if you will, because of the lack of the ability to believe. Um, so that kind of lays the groundwork of what we're going to be talking about today. And um, I'll turn it over to Sean and Andrew, and we'll start talking about some of the early church writings and some of the church fathers, and what they had to say about these issues. Yeah, so um, first we're going to start out with the Didache. The Didache is one of the earliest sources we have that's not the New Testament. Either the Didache or First Clement, um, depending on the dating, is, is the earliest uh, document that we have. So this comes from uh, chapter 7. Um, and concerning baptism, baptize this way. Having first said all these things, baptize into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in living water. But if you have not living water, baptize into other water. And if you cannot, in cold and warm. But if you have not either, pour out water thrice upon the head into the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. But before the baptism, let the baptizer fast and the baptized and whatever others can. But you shall order the baptized to fast one or two days before. So um, there's, there's, a, there's an interesting argument uh, to be made from this passage about the mode of baptism uh, of immersion, but primarily uh, we're going to focus on the fact that here in the Didache, uh, there's it's it's saying that the baptized should be commanded to fast, which would imply this is someone who can understand the command. Obviously, an infant can't understand nor obey a command, um, which would uh, imply uh, credo baptism, and. The Didache seems to be some sort of early manual for new converts or um, just general Christian living. So one would expect that if there was to be a case for um, infant baptists, or sorry, uh, for baptizing infants, that's different than the norm, they would also place this in the chapter on baptism. They would then go on to say, but obviously for your infants, you can't order them to fast, so do X or whatever. But there is there is no such thing in here. It just says you shall order the baptized to fast, which would give clear indication of um, credo baptism. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd like to also point out the uh, there's a parallel here between what they command the the person being baptized to do and what uh, Tertullian actually commands the person baptized to do. Tertullian says uh, fairly similarly that those who are about to enter upon baptism ought to pray with frequent prayers, fastings, and bowings of the knee, and long watchings, and with confession of all their past sins. And we know everybody admits that Tertullian's work is against infant baptism. He couldn't make that any more clear. He actually went farther than just saying infants should be baptized. He was actually against even people who weren't married yet or hadn't committed themselves to continency because he thought, well, they might fall into great sin, so they're not really, uh, we don't really want to baptize them that early because, you know, even in those days, they had the problems of, you know, people make confessions in young ages and then show themselves in their later years to not be true believers. Um, but anyways, uh, so we see in the Didache uh, them making 
also a command uh, for the baptized person to fast and to prepare, just like we see in the anti-infant Baptist work of Tertullian. So it shows it's not, uh, it's probably not just like a local tradition thing, but the two of them together kind of represent a wider portion of Christianity, showing that that was uh, very likely a normative uh, practice for people about well, to be baptized. Yeah, I believe, and I could be wrong about this, so don't hold me to it. I believe the Didache um, seems to be, have been written in the region of Egypt or used in the region of Egypt. Mm-hmm. And then Tertullian's in Carthage, which yeah, is North Africa. North Africa, which obviously it's the same continent, but you do, you do have quite a distance between the two of them. And as we're going to go on, um, Justin Martyr was in the region of Antioch, or am I wrong about that? Um... I'm not going to come. Okay. All right. I know, I know Tatian was in uh, mm-hmm. Syria mm-hmm. and Tatian was a disciple of Justin Martyr. I don't know if mm-hmm. Justin Martyr lived out his whole life there. Okay. Well, regardless, it's, it's a little bit of a wide area. Over the Carthage. Oh, Justin Martyr was? Uh, Tertullian. Oh yeah. yeah Tertullian from Carthage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're yeah. talking about uh, oh, Justin, Justin Martyr. Martyr. Yeah. yeah. I'm just doing a quick Google search here so we can mm-hmm. find out. Um, can can you tell that not every part of this uh, podcast is scripted? <laughs> <laughs> so it makes it fun. Um, yes. So he was born in Nablus and he died in Rome. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I mean, that would make sense. He did write something to the Roman emperor, but. Well, and that's when he was also being martyred, though. So yeah. no if you just brought that. Oh, up. true that, true that. But anyways, regardless, uh, not, not, it's, it's immaterial to our point yeah. here. Did you have any uh, points on the Didache before we moved on, Dan? Um, I was just curious, what was the year it was written? Uh, the year early, I, I think. Yeah, the year I normally see, I think, is 90 AD, but I might be wrong. Some people that. push it before that. Okay. Even. Yeah. They'll so like a, it like it's basically a first century. Closer New Testament. It's basically yes. first century. Okay. Yeah. 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 Which gives uh, us a, which is important because that gives us a glimpse into what the early church did at that time. And clearly, yes. and this may not have been a widely used document. We don't know that. I, at least I don't. But. I think that it gives us an idea of what church practice was at the time. Mm-hmm. It was not infant baptism. Mm-hmm. Well, at the very least, um, I believe the uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church recognize it as a as a valid document in the historic history of the church, and they would be pedo baptists, obviously. So uh, they they would struggle uh, a little with this. Mm-hmm. Um, moving on to uh, Polycarp, we do want to actually intersperse some uh, some quotations that uh paedobaptists like to bring up as proving paedobaptism it wouldn't be completely uh fair if we didn't uh at least try to interact with uh what they say although i will be honest a lot of these seem incredibly weak uh in terms of proving paedobaptism. i would say these quotes actually strengthen our case that it wasn't a normative practice for the first two centuries because this is really all they can manage to bring up to try to establish as a practice yeah but yeah yeah, so this is going to, uh, this uh, quote is from the martyrdom of Polycarp, and it's Polycarp speaking. Uh, Polycarp was martyr- martyred at a very old age, and in his martyrdom, he says uh, to whatever uh, Roman magistrate was uh, talking to him, 86 years have I served him, him being Jesus, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? So Paedobaptists like to argue that, well, it says 86 years have I served him. That means he was a Christian um, from when he was born, essentially. And uh, that means that, therefore, he was he was baptized. Uh, I think the logic on that is very strenuous. Um, 
first of all, we don't know how old, I don't think we know how old Polycarp was when he died. If he died at 91, then he could very well have just been saying, well, 86 years have I, I served him because he mm-hmm. became a Christian from from a uh, young age. Uh, we, we as Baptists don't believe that you have to be an adult to be baptized. We just believe that you need a credible profession of faith before baptism should be administered to a person. So if a five-year-old gives a credible profession of faith, there's no issue with that. Um, also, he, he could have just been speaking in general um, that 86 years have served him. He wasn't necessarily thinking of the entirety or when he was baptized. But the point, as you're going to see with all the quotations we bring up that Pato Baptists like to bring up, um, nowhere is baptism ever mentioned in there. It has to be inferred, and I think it's a very weak inference at best. And what's interesting, too, is that it's almost like if they use this argument, they have to, in order to be consistent, they would have to adopt the uh, infant baptismal regeneration. Because if you're saying that he was saved after being baptized or on the basis of his baptism, that's not even consistent with what most Presbyterians would even use today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're, we're, you have a problem there. And that's going to go into the Irenaeus quote as well. It's just, it, it doesn't even work on your own standard. You're just kind of grasping at straws, I think. Yeah, were the, the infants that are baptized in the Presbyterian church, would they be saying they were serving them from that time until they would become legitimately saved by faith later on? Like, probably probably not. I mean, when you're talking about serving, that's not usually talking about to, like, when I was baptized. He just, he was a Christian for that long. And there are many people, like, even in Baptist churches, like in our church, who have been saved for probably a good number of years before they were able to make the a profession of faith credible enough to receive baptism. Like they're saved before they even like remembered when it happened, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not against that. Like we believe that uh, people of all ages can be saved, but we just won't baptize them until we uh, we have some confidence in the profession. So. Yeah, and and just on his age note, I just did the math. So he was born in sixty five A.D., died one fifty five A.D. That's a difference of ninety years. Oh really? Oh, that's interesting. So, <laughs> so he, he may have been that. saved just at a very early age. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Assuming those are oh the exact years here he was born and died. Right. Sometimes they, those are estimates, but um, but yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on to Irenaeus. Irenaeus is going to be another quotation that uh, Pato Baptists say that uh, support their case that Pato Baptism or is evidence of Pato Baptism in the first two centuries. Uh, he Jesus. Came, uh, came to save all through himself, all I say who through him are reborn in God, infants and children and youths and old men. Therefore he passed through every age, becoming an infant for infants, sanctifying infants, a child for children, sanctifying those who are of that age, uh, so that he might be a perfect teacher in all things, perfect not only in respect to the setting forth of truth, perfect in respect to relative age. And that's from against heresies. Uh, I think that's volume two, chapter 22, uh, four. Wait, before you start, I just want yeah. to point out, that's a really interesting quote to use because uh, if you're familiar with the context in which Irenaeus says that, this is when he's going to argue that Jesus was at least 50 years old before he was crucified. Yeah. Something <laughs> which nobody believes. Uh, now, regardless, you might say it still reflects what the, the church viewed about infants at the time. So it's not too relevant to this mm-hmm. point, but I just think it's an interesting quote to mm-hmm. use. Uh, sorry, go on. Yeah. So obviously the word infant um, is at least in this passage. So um, we, we recognize that. 
But the issue is once again, is it saying that infants are being baptized? It's it's not. It's just saying that um, Jesus died for infants, which we who hold to the 1689 would agree with, as, as Dan read the, the section from about elect infants before. Um, there's nothing. There's nothing in here that a Reformed Baptist couldn't affirm. Is what I'm saying. So uh, some people might think this is this is strong evidence, but uh, I would find it very weak. Um, it doesn't say what they're trying to make it say. Maybe 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 Irenaeus did hold to infant baptism. I don't know, but I, I would say this is very stren uh, strenuous to try and make this say that. And that's the pattern I've I've been noticing as we were going through these quotes before. It's like. If a Baptist could say these words, it's probably not a good argument for it. <laughs> and it doesn't like, seem like Irenaeus is actually, <laughs> doesn't seem like he's actually pinpointing all infants. It sounds like he's speaking generically. You know how Paul will use the term yeah. all in a very limited sense. So he's, it almost like he's speaking well, in categories like infants are saved, children are saved, youths and old men, and they're yeah, reborn he has God. to be, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it would seem that way. It doesn't seem like he's saying all infants necessarily. And there's nothing in here about baptism at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not, he not has to be. Otherwise, that would be also saying that all youths and all old men are saved, too. Right. If he was speaking about a Presbyterian every would deny. literal man, <laughs> he's just saying all kinds of ages that right. uh, Jesus died for, which we agree with. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, moving on to Justin Martyr. So Justin Martyr will be a little interesting because uh, we have one quotation that's uh, to be against credo-baptism and then uh, two quotations in support of credo-baptism. So uh, let's begin with the ones against credo-baptism. Uh, and many, both men and women, who have been Christ's disciples from childhood remain pure at the age of 60 or 70 years. And I boast that I could produce such from every race of man, men. So um, I think this probably might be the weakest of the, the three we've brought up. Um, it does say childhood. That's true. They've been Christ's dis disciples, but that doesn't mean that they were baptized prior to the, as infants. Um, if you want to say that they were disciples from childhood, well, Maybe they made a profession of faith at childhood and were baptized after making that profession of faith. Once again, baptism, the word baptism doesn't occur in the sentence, and it's its tenuous to read that in there. Yeah, it's the same type of argument that they made with uh, Polycarp earlier, essentially. Yeah. It's like, oh, if, he served, if they served him for that long, they must have been baptized as an infant, which it doesn't follow. Big fat non sequitur. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, so two um, two quotations in support of credo baptism. This both these both come from uh, just Martyr's first apology, chapter sixty one. I will also relate the manner in which we dedicated ourselves to God when we had when we had been made new through Christ. Lest if we omit this, we seem to be unfair in the explanation we are making. As many as are persuaded and believe that we teach and say. I uh, uh, believe that what we teach and say is true and, are and undertake to be able to live accordingly are instructed to pray and to entreat God with fasting for the remission of their sins that are past. We praying and fasting with them, then they are brought by us where there is water and are regenerated in the same manner in which we were ourselves regenerated. 
And for this right, uh, this is now the second quotation a little bit later. And for this right, we have learned from the apostles this reason. Since at our birth, we were born without our own knowledge or choice by our parents coming together and were brought up in bad habits and wicked training in order that we may not remain the children of necessity and of ignorance, but may become the children of choice and knowledge and may obtain in the water the remission of sins formerly committed, there's pronounced over him who chooses to be born again and has repented of his sins, the name of, the, of God the Father and Lord of the universe, he who leads to the labor, the person that is to be washed, calling him by this name alone. Now, um, there's a lot in here that we as Reformed Baptists would have issues with. Um, I'm not saying that Justin Martyr was 100% perfect on his theology here, and we, we, would, we would disagree. We're not claiming that Justin Martyr was a Reformed Baptist here. <laughs> he was very far. <laughs> yes. But um, you, you will note a lot of the language here uh, cannot obviously be applied to infants. He's saying that uh, you need to choose to be born again, which we would, we would disagree with, but at least you've got to recognize that an infant doesn't choose to be born again. It doesn't choose to repent of their sins to come to God the Father in that in that way, um, or if they do, you have no way of knowing it. Um, any other comments there? Well, yeah, just Justin the Martyr. Uh, he was one of the. He's really the earliest example of uh, uh, early church writer who had a strong doctrine of uh, free will, and because the reason for that is because he was a really a philosopher first. He, he uh, continued to wear his philosopher garments when he walked around in public. He was from the Platonic school of thought before he was saved, and he retained a lot of that. Um, so free will was really essential for him, and that's kind of what he's emphasizing here, is that uh, the person who's being saved is somebody who chooses themselves to be born again. Um, to say that somebody could be forced to be born again would be very against his own high view of uh of the free will. Again, we don't we don't share his theology in that point, but he doesn't really give any indication here that uh, his advocation for somebody having to make uh, a profession of uh, a profession of faith for Christ themselves. We don't really see anything in here that suggests that he was unique in holding that part of it, uh, he, or that he was going against the common practice, which was to baptize people who didn't choose mm -hmm. or who didn't uh, profess faith mm -hmm. themselves in Christ. One would expect if he were to be reacting against that in, a, in a, uh, an apology and a polemical work, he might actually specify, and this is the reason why we don't baptize infants, if he was aware of it. Not saying that he might not have been aware of it, but you would expect that. It, it's, um, it's a little inconsistent there. Um, any, any other uh, comments about this before we move on? I think it's just interesting. There's like a clear order here in the first quote. You're instructed to pray and to entreat with fasting for the remission of the sins that are past, and then they're brought to water. Now, yes. I don't know about the second part of that in our regenerated. I don't know if that's talking about baptismal regeneration, but either Probably way, way. <laughs> either way, there's there's an order being done here. Someone believes, and then they are baptized. Yeah, well, also people tended to use the term uh, regeneration in a different way than us to Calvinistic circles do today, especially modern Calvinistic circles. There's actually been a, a slight change in what we refer to as regeneration from the earlier period of Calvinists, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but when they see red regeneration, they're mostly talking about when somebody uh, receives the Holy Spirit, like as in like as in they're indwelt by Him, not that they're 
being drawn towards the Father and are united to Christ. And we would say that, yeah, you're united to Christ uh, after your uh, profession of faith, because it's through mm-hmm. the instrument of faith that you're united to Christ. And that's usually what they're talking about when they're talking about regeneration. So it's not necessarily the turning of heart that we, we think of today when we use the term. Um, so that's important to keep in mind, too. All right. So now on to the main event, Tertullian himself. Uh, so uh, this is going to be somewhat of a lengthy quotation, and Andrew might even more add more to this quotation as we go on. But um, this is from his, uh, his uh, it's not a tract, I guess it's a, a book on baptism, essentially. Yeah, it's a short, short work. Yeah. Um, and he, he brings up the idea of infant baptism. Uh, and this is either the late 2nd century or early 3rd century at this point, because uh, Tertullian actually crosses the century boundary. But um, so onto the quote. And so according to the circumstances and disposition and every age of each individual, the delay of baptism is preferable, principally, however, in the case of little children. For why is it necessary, if baptism itself is not so necessary, that the sponsors likewise should be thrust into danger, who both themselves, by reason of mortality, may fail to fulfill their promises, and may be disappointed by the development of an evil disposition in those for whom they stood. The Lord does indeed say, forbid them not to come unto me. Let them come then while they are growing up. Let them come while they are learning. While they are learning whether to come, let them become Christians when they have become able to know Christ. Why does the innocent period of life hasten to the remission of sins? More caution will be exercised in worldly matters, so that one does not one who is not trusted with earthly substance is trusted with divine. Let them know how to ask for salvation, that you may seem, at least, to have given to him who asks. For no less cause must be the must the unwedded also be deferred, in whom the ground of temptation is prepared, alike in such as never were wedded by means of their maturity, and in the widowed by means of their freedom, until they either marry or else be more fully strengthened for, uh, for continence. Uh, if any understand the weighty of Im- uh, the weighty import of baptism, they will fear its reception more than its delay. Sound faith is secure of salvation. And that, that's, that's the important part right there. Uh, well, not necessarily the important part, but that's definitely a, an important part. Um, uh, if you have faith, you will be saved. And therefore, um, Tertullian is not in a rush to baptize anybody and specifically says, no, we shouldn't be baptizing uh, little children. We should uh, wait until they've, they've come to Christ, essentially, to baptize them. Yeah, exactly. Now, he does say some things that might uh, strike our ears as kind of strange. Like he refers uh, in the one sense, why does the innocent period of life hasten to the remission of sins? Uh, So it makes it sound like baptism is responsible for your remission of sins. Yet at the same time, he says that baptism itself is not so necessary and that sound faith is secure of salvation, even if they didn't receive the sacrament of baptism. Um, so again, uh, his view is, is different from ours. It's not exactly the same. Um, when he speaks of remission of sins in Tertullian's worldview, and it comes out other places in the epistle, uh, remission of sins, uh, normally occurs at the baptism event. 
and that's where he said that they received the Holy Spirit. Uh, however, he makes an exception for people who uh, aren't able to uh, receive baptism because they die beforehand, or also people who fell into sin after baptism. He says there's another baptism, which is the baptism of of uh, of blood. Uh, and I'll just read that short section real quick. We have indeed, besides the second washing itself, also one to wit, that of blood, whereof the Lord saith, I have a baptism to be baptized with when he had already been baptized. Uh, for he had come by water and blood, as John hath written, that he might be washed by water, glorified by blood, wherefore that he might make us to be called by water, chosen by blood. He sent forth these two baptisms from the wound of his pierced side, so far that those who believed in his blood might be washed with water, and that those who had been washed with water might also drink his blood. This is that baptism which both standeth in the place of the labor when not received and restoreth it when lost. So uh, again, the normative experience for him is that you receive the remission of sins at the baptism event, but for those who don't receive it, faith unimpaired is assured of salvation, or as this translation says, sound faith is secure of salvation. And, um, and they would have the, the benefits of baptism through their, their faith in the blood of Christ, uh, essentially. So yeah, he's... It's not our view, for sure, but he's certainly some type of credo-baptist. He, he does not believe in infant baptism, and he doesn't even think unmarried people who might fall into sin <laughs> should be baptized. Uh, I, don't and, think, I don't think any group can say we 100% – they can't say 100% they agree with Tertullian here at all. Oh, no. Yeah. He, he doesn't with, really represent any modern yeah, group. Yeah, uh, which, which is – another issue you run into where everybody's trying to say, oh, the church fathers were 100% in line with us. Uh, they support our position. It's like, you, you read them, it's like, um, nah, they have some uh, interesting ideas that nobody today agrees with. And we don't, we don't need them uh, to be 100% in line with us. Just because these particular writings have survived today doesn't necessarily mean that uh, there weren't others that we would feel uh, held a more biblical view at the time it's just what survived um people think that we have a 100 percent idea of what precisely church the church in this period of history looked like or that period of history but honestly we're dealing with fragments of writing of, of certain people and it's, it's somewhat times hard to know um so that basically takes us through the second century um so at this point, there is at least some infant baptism going on. Um, we can't tell exactly from Tertullian how pervasive this practice is. Uh, he, he just writes a little bit about it, um, which would seem to imply to me that it's not very per pervasive. Otherwise, he would uh, write more about it or a little bit harsher if he disagreed. But it's not it's it. I won't put 100 percent weight on that idea necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, moving on. Uh, we do start seeing more people explicitly talking about infant baptism. Um, for example, Hippolytus actually right on the heels of Tertullian in 217, I believe it is, uh, gives the first clear indication of somebody supporting infant baptism. So we're, we're not saying that nobody, nobody did this, obviously. Um, and going into church history, you do see it become more and more of a predominant practice um, with people supporting it. Although 
there are still very clear indications that it's not a universal practice. For example, uh, Jerome, who himself did 100% support infant baptism, actually wasn't baptized until his teen years, despite having grown up in a Christian household. And I think there's a couple other church fathers that's the same way. So while we don't necessarily have credo-baptistic writings, uh, explicit credo-baptistic writings all the time, we do have little bits of indication that this is not necessarily universal practice. Um, I don't know. Did you guys have any other comments? No, just uh, I think that a lot of, you know, that our Presbyterian brothers love to hold on to tradition over clear hermeneutical application in the scriptures and also it appears here with church history. Um, and I think both have to be consistently applied. Um, you know, we have to go with what the data we have with our church, with the church fathers, and then we have to go with what the biblical data is in order to have a consistent, I think, uh, holistic view of um, of this Christian doctrine. Otherwise, we're going to fall into really traditionalism. You know, we're going to elevate our tradition above what the historical evidence is. We're just going to make blanket statements. You know, oh, yeah, they all believe this. They all believe this. And we've been able to clearly show that that's not necessarily the case. Um, and even so, prominent men will say that, like R.C. Sproul in his debate with John MacArthur said, we should have expected to see some debate about this doctrine in the early centuries, and we they don't. They did. <laughs> and we just read you that there was debate and disagreement about this doctrine. So yeah, it's a, it's a shame, but yeah, I think a lot of people simply aren't aware of the early historical evidence on the subject. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think there's just a lot of there. people that don't read the early church fathers, you know? Mm -hmm. They are difficult mm -hmm. to read, and it's not, you know, something you go and pick up quick. You know, if it's R.C. Sproul or Tertullian, you're probably going to go with R.C. Sproul. He's a lot easier to read and much mm -hmm. more um, attuned to the modern ear. So I, I think that lends to there being a hesitancy to study these things. But it's important, you know, and, and this is one thing that the Reformers did with the Renaissance, so going back to the sources, recovering what the early church said and using that to inform the doctrine that was being permeated in their time with the Catholic church in particular. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these things are important. Church yeah, history mm -hmm. is, is important. Uh, it's not our ultimate authority, but it is important in helping us to understand what the church did. And we can learn a lot from what men who have worked through these things already on our behalf um, learned and we can work through their errors and and take the knowledge that we have now to inform that and and help us to better understand these doctrines mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I would like to just say to our presbyterian brethren and even some that aren't necessarily our brethren that uh the next time that uh you go and try to bash a baptist over the head because oh where where are the baptists say in the ninth century or whatever we we recognize if there are any Baptists, a credo Baptists, that uh, in certain parts of church history, it's very hard to see where they are, uh, at least ones that we would consider fellow believers, uh, that to remember that, well, in the first two centuries, it's very hard to see where the Pado Baptists are. And if you're willing to still say, oh, but there were definitely Pado Baptists there, even if the historical evidence doesn't um, quite shine that through very well, then give us some grace as well when we might. Um, <laughs> might try to make similar arguments especially since the catholics might turn around and say the same thing regarding the people believed by justification by faith mm -hmm. alone which i was certain periods yeah. of church history it's harder to find prominent people who say it yeah but we believe by faith that they were there mm -hmm. um and now it's not as necessary that a practice like baptism was always practiced perfectly uh throughout church history as belief in the gospel yes but nevertheless 
we got to admit that historical evidence is fragmentary. So mm-hmm. you can't just make an argument from silence like that. Right. All righty. Well, I think right. that concludes our show for today. Thank you, Andrew, for joining us today. We appreciate the insight and your fellowship. Yes, thank you for having me. Yeah, sure. Um, and Lord willing, we will be, we're going to, I think, start getting back to our, our normal schedule um, starting today. We're going to actually, uh, in November, beginning of November, we're going to have a couple guests on. Uh, Jeffrey D. Johnson is going to be on the 7th, and then Tom Hicks is going to be on um, the 16th. We'll do a show on Monday instead of Saturday. Um, so we're looking forward to that. It's going to be kind of a, a busy month in November, I think. Uh, but everybody take care and Lord willing, we will see you next week. Bless.